Let's open our Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, where Tim read for us earlier, and we'll get into our message this morning. 2 Corinthians 2, 5 through 11. But if anyone has caused grief, he has not grieved me. But all of you to come to some extent, not to be too severe. This punishment which was inflicted by the majority is sufficient for such a man. So that on the contrary, you ought rather to forgive and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. Therefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love to him. For to this end I also wrote that I might put you to the test whether you are obedient in all things. Now whom you forgive anything, I also forgive. For if indeed I have forgiven anything, I have forgiven that one for your sakes in the presence of Christ, lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. Now this morning is really uh, two messages. Part one, I would like to draw a comparison between the church at Corinth and the last day church of Laodicea. Part two, uh, it will be the text we just read, Paul to the church at Corinth to forgive this person, and I'll take you back there, we'll, we'll look at who this person is, that Paul had to remove because of sexual misconduct, who had since now repented because he was removed from the church, and now he's been restored. A little background, because it's been a while since we've been uh, in um, Corinthians. So I'm gonna put up on the screen Paul's second and third missionary journey. First one is gonna be Paul's second missionary journey. We'll put that up. And if you're taking notes, I'll, I'll just leave that up for a little bit. And if you're taking notes, um, his second journey is recorded in the book of Acts. You can write this down, Acts chapter 15, um, verse 36, through chapter 18, verse 22. Uh, Of course, Paul had three missionary journeys. On the first one, he was not at uh, Corinth. Now I'm gonna put up on the screen uh, Paul's third missionary journey, and that is recorded for us also in the book of Acts, and it's Acts chapter 19, verse one, through chapter 21, verse 14. And as you go through this, you can see where um, Paul was in these particular um, churches. And um, he actually wrote to the Corinthians from Macedonia. Now, if you go way up to the, let's see, it would be the far left-hand corner to the very top, that's Macedonia. And that's where he wrote from when he wrote to the church at Corinth in 56 AD. Uh, What Paul was dealing with is, let's go back uh, to chapter one. Uh, What Paul was uh, dealing with in chapter one in verses eight through 11, we dealt with that last week, was Paul's trouble that he had in Asia, and he was talking about the difficulty, and I made the point, it was so difficult 
that he even despaired even of life. And um, here's a church that just is not getting it, okay? Paul is explaining to them, understand what being a Christian is all about. It's denying yourself, picking up your cross, and following Jesus. Good place for an amen. This was not the mentality or the attitude of the people living in Corinth. Corinth was a very wealthy city. And while I'm talking about the reason for its wealth, I'm gonna put up some pictures that we had up before. Um, This is a canal, and um, this canal was not dug in Paul's day. It wasn't done until the 1800s. They used to have two ports, and that's the reason for the wealth of Corinth. Uh, They used to take their ships and actually drag them across so they wouldn't have to sail all the way around. Uh, They would drag there, and, and the reason for its prosperity, it was the wealthiest city, even more important than Athens, in Paul's time. It was also extremely pagan and heathenistic. I'll put up a picture of the remains of the temple to Aphrodite. Um, that's it on top there. And what they would do once a week is they would come down into the city. Uh, they had 1,000 temple prostitutes, and it was their form of worshiping sexually Aphrodite. And so not only were they extremely wealthy, they were extremely paganistic. The population was 700,000. What is, what is Appleton? About 76, I think, thousand. So 700,000, of which two-thirds were slaves. So here's this huge city, extremely prosperous, uh, extremely wealthy, and now Paul was teaching what comes with following Jesus, and they were so far from that. If you go to verses eight and nine, um, Paul talks about, in chapter one, about his personal trials and sufferings. And uh, my friends, we need to to be straight up when we're talking about um, coming to the Lord, that this is gonna be your best life you're ever gonna have. If you just give your life to Jesus, it's gonna be a walk in a rose garden and, and, I'm afraid that's not the case at all. <laughs> just, just the opposite. One of the first things that happens is it divides family. And um, you didn't become one of those crazy holy rollers, did you? Uh, I can just see our um, social life from this point on. And um, this was the mentality that the Corinthian church had and Paul's saying, look, that's not the case. Let me give you my own personal example, he's saying a lot of trials, a lot of sufferings. And um, what were they used to? Well, the Corinthian church was used to comfort, prosperity, not working with their hands. They had slaves to do that kind of stuff. Paul said, I work with my own hands. I'm a tent maker. So that I wouldn't have to um, look for handouts from people. He worked with his own hands. So let's compare the Corinthian church to the church, the last day church of Laodicea, and also at this time, I'm gonna put up a chart. 
And the chart is basically um, seven letters to the seven churches. And before I comment on, this is Revelation chapter two and three. Before I comment, if you look down towards the very bottom, and I don't see that, um, uh, at the very, very bottom, there's from the church of Thyatira, there's an arrow going down, and the last fort, the fourth church would be Laodicea. And in my notes here, the one thing that it says is Christ, the churches that will exist until Jesus returns. In other words, um, Pergamum, I mean um, Thyatira, uh, speaks of Roman Catholicism. That would be in existence when the Lord returns. Um, Sardis the suffering church, the persecuted church, and there's many Christians being persecuted around the world today, would also be in existence. The church of Philadelphia, the church of brotherly love that the Lord promised because they were little in strength but kept his word, he's gonna keep them from that hour that's gonna come upon the entire world. The church of Philadelphia will be here when the Lord returns. And then the last one, the church of Laodicea, is what I'd like you to turn to, to Revelation chapter three. You notice I said Revelation? Just for the record, all these rumors and false accusations flying around of my pronunciation. (laughs) Laodicea. Um, We'll pick it up in verse 14. This will be the last. I do believe in the train of thought that they follow a chronological order as you can see down there, the first one would be uh, Ephesus, and on the very bottom line, I think it says 300 to 100 A.D., and then Smyrna, the suffering church, 100 to 312 A.D. The suffering stopped when Constantine became emperor. Um, he professed uh, Christianity, and as a result, the persecution stopped. And um, that would that would have been the church of Smyrna, and then the uh, Pergamum um, was 312 to 606, and then we have Thyatira, 600 to uh, the the tribulation. We have um, dead um, Protestantism in here, and the dates are on the bottom. But my concern is doing a comparison because as I look at the church at large today, I see these four churches. I see Roman Catholicism. I see the suffering church uh, primarily in Africa and other places around the world uh, in China. They have to go underground. Um, I see dead Protestantism. In other words, they say they confess Christ, but unfortunately they're not born again, and um, I see that there today. I see the Church of Philadelphia, little strength, but they kept the word, and they would not compromise on the word. And um, then I also see what I like to call the, the, the faith uh, teachers, the prosperity teachers, um, you know, the Joel Osteens of the world, uh, who really won't talk about sin or, or hell or judgment and um, but that this really is your best life now 
And I see that church out there today too, and I would liken that to um, the church of Laodicea. So let's read verse 14 of chapter three. To the angel of the church of Laodicea write, these things says the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, that you're neither cold nor hot. I would wish you were cold or hot. So then because you're lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, the word there is actually vomit, I will spew you or vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich. Well, this was exactly the mentality of the Corinthian church. They were rich. And I have become wealthy. I have need of nothing. I let my servants do the labor. That was their assessment of themselves. But now the Lord's assessment is, and, but you do not know that you're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. They had an assessment of themselves, but the Lord had his own assessment of the church of Laodicea. He says, I counsel you therefore to buy from me gold refined in the fire. Now when Paul talks about trials, he likens it to a refining fire that you go through with, with the idea of burning like gold. That When you refine gold, you burn it and it burns off all the impurities that are not pure gold and what's left when it's all over with is pure gold. And that's the idea, but that can only be accomplished. You ever heard the term for a trial? Boy, I really went through a burner the other day. Or I went through a fiery trial. Well, that, that's what the Lord is counseling them to do. Go, be refined that you may be rich and white garments that you may be clothed that the shame of your nakedness may not uh, be revealed and anoint your eyes with eye salve so that you may see. Now, this was the most loving thing the Lord can do. And he says so in the next verse. He says, as many as I love, I rebuke and chastise. Therefore, be zealous and repent. If you sin and uh, you're not getting reproved for it, we're talking Hebrews chapter 12 if you're taking notes, that if a father disciplines his son, that um, how much more will your heavenly father not discipline you. Why? Because he loves them. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Now what's interesting about this is this is usually something we quote to somebody who we're talking to about Christ, that the Lord is there and he's knocking at the door and if you let him in, you know, you can be born again. Well, this is already a church. Where's the door? He's on the outside trying to get in. I think when Tim prayed for us this morning, he acknowledged, Lord, we know you're walking amongst us. Wherever two or more are gathered in his name, then Jesus promises to be here. The Lord is with us right now. But not in this church. He's on the outside trying to get in. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. And to him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Now if you have ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. In my notes here, um, 
Jesus' title is Faithful and True Witness versus an unfaithful and untrue witness in this church. The name means, this is interesting, customs of the people or political correctness. This church is influenced by its society. Society was influencing the church, but we are to be the ones to influence the world. Amen? We're the salt and light. We're supposed to be the ones doing the influencing, not the other way around. But how many churches today are conforming their church? Willow Creek actually did a survey. This is how they got started. And they went out and did a demographic study. And they said, what would you like to see at a church? And everybody wrote down, this is what I'd like to see in a church. And this is what I'd like to see in a church. And that's the way they made their church. We call it a seeker-sensitive church. Um, and we are not. <laughs> um, the church is to be the influence in society, and um, they were apostate, affluent, worldly, indifferent, lifeless, formal. They had an attitude that they were rich and self-sufficient. Uh, this is similar to the health and wealth gospel of today. They refused to see themselves as poor and as being needy. Um, the biblical perspective of the last day church is also talked to us in the book of Second Timothy, which I'm going to have you turn to, please. Second Timothy three, for starters. Second Timothy chapter three talks about the last day's church, and uh, I'm going to read the first seven verses of Second Corinthians chapter three. I think we visited this last week because of the first sentence, and we, but we didn't read any farther than the first sentence. But know this, in the last days, perilous times will come, and I told you that in my margin here, the word for perilous was times of stress. Well, simple question. Do you think we're living in times of stress right now? I'm glad I know the Lord. I people who don't know the Lord with everything that's going on, they are stressed out, they have no hope, and when people have no hope, they resort many times to taking their own lives. They see no way out. They don't see it getting better. Maybe they've lost their job. And um, perilous times are times of stress. Then it goes on, for men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, Boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving. We're going to be talking about forgiveness next. Slanders, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Oh, they have a form of godliness. They go to church but deny its power. From such people turn aside. For of this sort are those who creep into households and make captives of gullible women loaded down with sins, led away by various lusts. And here's a great verse. They're always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now I'll jump over to chapter four, Second Timothy chapter four. We'll read the first five verses here, this is Paul writing to Timothy, 
and he's charging him. I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word. Timothy, preach the word. Be ready in season, out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort and do it with all long suffering and teaching. Jesus rebuked the church of Laodicea but he says as many as I love Those are the people I'm going to rebuke. So Paul is telling Timothy the same thing. Rebuke if you have to, but do it in a a spirit of of long-suffering and teaching. Why? Because the time's going to come when they will not endure sound doctrine. What is sound doctrine? Whole counsel of God. From the beginning to the end. As it says here, all scripture... Um, is given by inspiration of God and um, the whole counsel of God, all of it. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine but according to their own desires because they have itching ears they will heap up for themselves teachers and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned away to fables. But you, Timothy, you be watchful in all things Endure affliction, do the work of an evangelist, and fulfill your ministry. Uh, Timothy was uh, sort of, uh, well, being mentored by Paul. And uh, he tells Timothy what it's going to be like in the last days. And then he gives him an exhortation uh, not to compromise. Many churches today have have the same attitude that the church of Corinth had I'm rich, need of nothing um, and that was their self-evaluation but it wasn't the Lord's he said you guys are cold or hot when it's hot outside you want a nice cold glass of lemonade right and when it's uh, hot outside nice hot cup of cocoa but either one lukewarm really doesn't get the job done does it so being hot or cold um uh, they were neither. All right, let's go back to Second uh, Corinthians chapter 2, and we'll talk about our second part this morning, which is the idea of biblical forgiveness. And we have here Paul referring to a person that um, sinned, so let's Take a look and just read what the sin was, but keep your figure here because we're coming right back. Let's go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and I'm just going to read it 1 through 8 and let it read, let it speak for itself. Chapter 5, verse 1. It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and such sexual immorality is not even named among the Gentiles, that a man has his father's wife. And you're puffed up, and you have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from you. For I indeed am absent. Remember, he is writing from Macedonia. So he's not there, and he's acknowledging he's not there. He says, I'm absent in body, but I'm present in the spirit, and I've already judged the matter as though I were present concerning him who has done this deed. 
in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, when you're gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. Kick him out of the church. Let the devil work him over for a little bit. And um, why? That his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. My friends, this is the most loving thing that you could do for this guy. This guy thought he was saved. If you're taking notes, write down 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9. Well, all I have to do is turn the page, and there it is. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived, neither fornicator or adulterer, or idolaters, homosexuals, sodomites, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And don't be deceived. Here's this guy going to church every Sunday. Everybody in church knew what was going on. And Paul says he thinks he's going to go to heaven. He's not. So turn him over. Let the devil work him over for a little while. And uh, now he's concerned about the whole church, not just this one man in verse 6. Your glorying is not good. Don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? This guy sleeping around on an ongoing basis, and I should stress this as a point. We're not talking a David Bathsheba experience. David repented of that when confronted with that. And, but this was continually ongoing. Everybody knew about it. And he says, you don't realize it, but you're polluting the whole church by not dealing with this issue. Paul says, I'm, near, I'm not there, but get rid of them. So they got rid of them. Therefore, let us keep the feast not with old leaven or with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. All right, what happened? Well, good news. Between 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, the guy repents. Okay, now let's go back to 2 Corinthians 4. And Paul now is commenting about this particular person that we just read about. And first of all, he says, look, I did, he's talking about... Um, um, I made you sorrowful in verse two. I didn't want to. It made me sorrowful, uh, but I had to do it. Verse four, out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears, not that you should be grieved, but that you might know the love which I have so abundantly for you. So that's where Paul's heart was at. And now he comments about this person that was kicked out. He says, if anyone has caused grief, he has not grieved me, but all of you to some extent, not to be too severe. This punishment which was inflicted by the majority is sufficient for such a man. You kicked him out. He learned his lesson. He repented, and now he's back in the church, but Paul is telling the people in the church, don't you dare treat him as a second-class Christian. On the contrary, Um, if you do, so that on the contrary, you ought to rather to forgive and comfort him, and please notice this, lest perhaps such one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. In other words, Paul's actually saying, 
Don't you remember what the Lord forgave you of and how he cleansed you? Well, this guy repented. And so you bring him in and you love him even, love on him even more because if you don't, um, he could, the wording here I like, would be swallowed up with too much sorrow. I was going to add this guy to our study that we had last week when we talked about being overwhelmed. Remember? We talked about um, David in Psalm 61 when he said, when I'm overwhelmed, then Lord, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. David, my hero, overwhelmed? Yep. Then we went and we talked about Paul. And... um, we quoted chapter one, verse eight, that even the apostle Paul was overwhelmed to the point that he despaired of his own life. Paul the apostle. Then I quoted even um, the Lord himself was overwhelmed when he prayed in the garden of Gethsemane. You have to remember that Jesus was fully God, but he was also fully man. And he knew what laid ahead. So we read in Luke that Jesus was overwhelmed as he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. The word there, he says he was in agony. And that he was in such agony that he actually sweat great drops of blood. So even our own own Lord was overwhelmed. And I wanted to throw this guy in here too because unless they really loved on him and really forgave them from the heart, then it said he'll be swallowed up with too much sorrow. I think I can interject the word overwhelmed there. Wouldn't you agree? He He would be overwhelmed if they didn't completely accept this guy back in, 100%. And um, with that, I would like to... um, go to Matthew chapter 18 and uh, Jesus gives a teaching on forgiveness. And so turn with me to Matthew chapter 18. Jesus' teaching on forgiveness. Pick it up in verse 21. Peter comes up, he comes up to the Lord and says, Lord, how many times shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him. How about seven times? Good, good number, don't you think, Lord? Seven times? The scribes and the Pharisees said three times. Uh, Peter just doubled it and add one. He says that should, be, that should impress the Lord. I'd forgive this guy seven times. And Jesus said, I do not say unto you seven times, but up to 70 times seven. Now I know Peter. You know what he was doing? He was doing the math. Seven times seven, 490. All right, but 491. (laughs) That's just the way Peter was Peter. No, it's an ongoing process. And then he gives a story. Instructions about forgiveness. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when he had begun to settle accounts, One was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. 
That is a lot of, lot of money. But he was not able to pay his master's command that he, so it was commanded that he be sold with his wife and his children, all that he had, that payment would be made. Take everything he has, bring it all back in. But the servant therefore fell down before him and saying, Master, if you'll just have patience with me, I'll pay it off. I'll put it a certain amount of way every week, but I don't know how I'm going to do it, but I promise. Just give me a chance and I'll pay it all back to you. And the master of the servant was moved with compassion. And he released him and he wiped the slate clean. He forgave him the debt. He says, just forget about it. Go home. So he's on his way home. But the servant went out, and as he was going home, he found a guy who owed him 100 denarii. Now, we are not talking apples and apples here. Between 100 denarii and um, um, the 10,000 talents. It's minuscule in comparison. And so he's on his way home, and this guy owes him that much. And he laid hands on him and took him by the throat. Say, pay me what you owe me. So the fellow servant goes through the same routine that the other guy did. He fell down at his feet and begged him, saying, well, just have patience with me, and I'll get it to you somehow. I'll pay it all back. And he would not, but went and he threw him into prison till he should pay the debt. Now, word got back, so when his fellow servant saw what had been done, They were grieved, and they came and told their master all that had been done. Then his master, after he called him, he said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all the debt because you begged me. Should you also not have had compassion on your fellow servant just as I had pity on you? And the master was angry, and he delivered him to the torturer's until he should pay all that was due to him. Now the application. So my heavenly father will also do to you if each of you from your heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. Let me add some personal thoughts. And what we have here is we're the first guy that was forgiven a debt that there was no way he could repay it. And that debt that has been forgiven, we will never have enough money to pay for it. It's a debt we could never pay because it's Jesus Christ forgiven you and me of our sins. By his own blood, the most costly, priceless commodity that the world has ever known and will ever know. And that's what you've been forgiven of. We've been saved, we sing the song, saved by the blood. And it's a debt that I could never repay. All I can do is be grateful and have this attitude of I call attitude of gratitude. And um, I know the truth. What does it say about the truth? Know the truth, it'll set you free. It's gone. And I know I can't pay it. 
I'm completely left out of the equation, so are you. So if we, when people come in, and I've had this conversation over the last 40 years with, I can't even tell you how many people, I just cannot forgive this guy. If you know what he did to me, and then they'll ramble on and say how much uh, they're upset uh, with this guy. And I said, well, you need to forgive him. Are you kidding me? After what he did to me? No way. So I, I, we go through this here. And I said, do you understand what the Lord is saying here? Yeah. Don't want to hear it. Well, if you don't hear it, you're not forgiving yourself. You've been forgiven something that you can never do. And you have no right. I'll put my finger right in her face. And say, you have no right to hold anything over anybody. You have to forgive them. And I'll tell you, this is a guy who won't forgive. This is a guy that's tossing and turning all night. He's being tortured. He won't let it go. He keeps his anger and hatred and lack of forgiveness inside of him. When it says he's turned over to the torturers, the guy that he's mad is probably sleeping like a rock and doesn't know a thing. Who's the one who's being tortured here? It's a guy that's holding this bitterness in his heart and he won't forgive from the heart. And I says, go ahead. If you want to walk out of this office today, you're going to be tossing and turning all night because now it's worse because now you know what to do and if you don't do it, it's going to be even more torture that's going to come upon you. Um, Therefore, we have an obligation to forgive and hold nothing over anyone. Now, in case I forget to say this at the end of the Bible study, I want to put this in. Is there a time and a place? I'm going to say it twice because I think it's that important. Where Jesus does not forgive a person? The answer to that question is yes. In order to have Jesus forgive you, you have to ask him to forgive you. You have to receive him by your own free will. And then he's not willing that any should perish. Implying what? Some will. Why? Because they hear the the sin that's called the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is the only sin that's unforgivable. It won't be forgiven in this world and it won't be forgiven in the world to come. Well, what in the world is the sin of blasphemy of of the Holy Spirit? That is when you hear the gospel you understand it completely. You're even convicted in your heart like in Acts chapter two they were. 3,000 got saved, but there was more than 3,000 people there that day. The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is when you understand, you're convicted, and you still don't give your life to Jesus. We'll be talking about universalism because um, we'll be closing this study with it, and that's the idea that God is love and Everybody gets saved, and I'll tell a little story about that. But um, this is what Paul is saying in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 about forgiving this man uh, who had been uh, a great sinner in a church, but he repented of his sin. And now Paul's saying, careful, you guys, and make sure you're forgiving him. Now, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand or close your eyes, but I want to, before we go any farther, just in your, the quiet of your own heart. Is there somebody there that you're holding 
unforgiveness in your own heart? What comes to mind? Who comes to mind? And that's between you and the Lord in this Bible study that we're having this morning. But do yourself a favor and forgive, even if it's for your own sake. Now, I'll ask this question. Is there a time we shouldn't forgive and forget? And the answer to that question is absolutely yes. I want you to turn with me back to 2 Timothy chapter 4. And uh, an experience that the Apostle Paul had in verses 14 and 15, we read, remember, this is the same chapter where Paul is charging Timothy to preach the word, to rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. This is all part of the same chapter. But he talks about this guy in verse 14. Alexander, the coppersmith, did me much harm. May the Lord repay him according to his works. You must, you also must be, be aware of him, for he has greatly resisted our words. Paul doesn't say here, forgive him, even though he, Paul was wronged by him. He doesn't say, forgive him. He says, look out for him. Is everybody following me? There are places and especially when it gets into the realm of um, false, false doctrine. Here, he would not receive the words and was actually causing much harm. Paul doesn't get into the details, but he says, the Lord's gonna, vengeance is mine, I'll repay, says the Lord. And, um, but Paul didn't say, yeah, yeah, I just forgave the guy. No, he told Timothy, look out for him. Didn't say forgive him, he said look out for him. There is another case where you should not forgive and that's in Romans chapter 16. So let's turn to Romans chapter 16. And in Romans chapter 16, verses 17 and 18, um, Paul is saying, now I urge you brethren that you note those who cause division and offenses Contrary to the doctrines, and now we're talking another doctrine here, and this doctrine is causing division, which you learned, and avoid them. For those who are such do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ but their own belly, and by smooth words and flattering speech deceive the heart of the simple. What Paul does not say here to this um, person that is um, causing division and contrary to sound doctrine, um, Paul doesn't say, well, you know, just forgive them and uh, don't worry about it. No, he says, mark them, point them out. And mark them and to avoid them, not to forgive them. And I especially want to zero in and um, maybe tell a personal story of um, people that we all know that you might love, care about. The person I'm gonna talk about, I love quite a bit, but I had to break fellowship with him and um, because of his doctrine. Uh, the person I'm going to talk about actually is a very famous man. Um, he was in the New Christie Minstrels. 
He was in the lead part with Lynn Kellogg in, in uh, Hair, when Hair was on Broadway. All you young people don't have a clue what I'm talking about right now. And um, I almost put this title, um, Laodicea and Corinth and Forgiveness, and then I was going to have a subtitle, and The Eve of Destruction, because the person I'm talking about is Barry McGuire. And some of you know who Barry is. I first met Barry in 1972 at Expo 72. And he would get up and he got saved and he was singing about Jesus and he would cry like a baby. His heart was that tender. And um, the next time I talked to him, but obviously I didn't get to know him or become friends at that time with him. Then in 1975, he was traveling with the second chapter of Acts. And I happened to be in Colorado Springs where they were, and I ran into Barry and the second chapter of Acts at the Christian bookstore. And um, they found out that I was in Shiloh, and for some reason that impressed them. Uh, Because there you pretty much give up everything you have, and your business is serving the Lord. And they were impressed with that. And uh, so I spent a day with them, and Barry says, Dwight, it's my birthday. Uh, why don't you come, out, come on out with us tonight? And uh, I happened to know the musician. His name is Vern Bullock. It was at his house. So this would have been Barry McGuire's 40th birthday party. I was invited to it, and we actually became friends uh, during this time. I worked with him during the concert, doing counseling afterwards, and just became Part, part of the group. So as time goes by, um, I called up Barry, and I said, Barry, we're having a pastor's conference. Might have been a prophecy conference, I don't know. How'd you like to come out, do the music? Love to, Dwight. And I said, great. <laughs> I was sort of pinching myself. Barry McGuire's gonna come and do the, the music at our, our, at our concert, conference that we're having. Well, Warren Smith was also invited, and I said, guess what, Warren? Barry McGuire's coming, playing. He says, Dwight, Barry's a universalist. I said, no, he's not. And he says, yes, he is. And I said, no, he's not. And he says, yes, he is. And I said, I know this guy. He's not a universalist. He says, Dwight, call him up and ask him. So I did. And I, I called him up and I said, Barry, you know, don't get offended, but I gotta ask you something. I said, Are you a universalist? You know what he said? What's that? (laughs) He said, what's that? And I said, Barry, it's it's when, it's the belief and it's a doctrine that's out there that says that um, because God's a loving God, everybody is going to be saved universally. So everybody's saved. Um, And he says, well, Dwight, of, of course I believe that. And we emailed back and forth for a whole month. Now, mind you, he's already invited to the conference. The brochures are printed up. And I got to call him up. And I, I called every friend that I knew that was a friend of Barry McGuire's and asked him, would you please try to reason with him? I love the guy. And it's hard, but it finally got down to our emails and the bottom line was this. He said, Dwight, just let me come and sing about Jesus. And I said, Barry, the name of our conference is Staying the Course. 
And how can I have somebody who openly confesses universalism be up here? I would be endorsing you, and I cannot endorse you. And I simply can't do it. And um, I tell that story because it's a personal story that I had to avoid them, as Paul says here, and and it says, avoid them. And I said, "Um, I'm sorry, Barry. Just can't do it. And it's hard. Now, why do I tell the story? Because everybody here knows somebody that's off the wall somewhere. I actually did my homework, and I thought, where did he get off track? This is not the guy I knew in 75. It's not the guy I knew in 72. So what happened? You know what I found out? I think Chuck Gerard told me this. Dwight, he played in a band one time with Brian McLaren. Some of you said, oh boy, you know who Brian McLaren is. He wrote the book, A Generous Orthodoxy, which he is um, the ringleader of universalism. Let's just put it that way. And that's where this came in. Now, we're very, very blessed with the musicians and our worship team. Wouldn't you agree? Okay. But I have to say this about musicians. They are more emotionally based many times and they let their heart lead them rather than sound doctrine. And I've seen, unfortunately, many of them uh, get sidetracked and get into weird stuff because it's more a heartfelt emotional thing rather than trials and suffering that go along with it. And so um, we're fortunate that um, our worship team is all on the same track and they're not into false doctrine at least I'm not aware of. I'm going to have to do some one-on-one talks with some of them, I suppose, now. But with that being said, I'd I'd like to uh, um, close this thing up by having you go back to um, Revelation and talk about the Church of Philadelphia. Two churches of the seven receive no correction or admonishment. One is the Church of Smyrna, the suffering church, and the other is the Church of Philadelphia. Nothing bad is said about it. And the Church of Philadelphia, the Lord tells them, and that would be uh, verses 7 of chapter 3 through 12. Um, He tells them that he will, these things says he who is holy, who is true, who has the keys of David and he who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door for ministry and no one can shut it. You have little strength. What does that mean? This is not a mega church. Philadelphia was not a mega church. But you've kept my word and you have not denied my name. What did Jesus say? Confess me before men. I'll confess you before my Father in heaven. Deny me before men, and I'll deny you before my Father who's in heaven. Not Philadelphia. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews that are not but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and know that I have loved you because you have kept my command to persevere. I will also keep you from the hour of trial which will come upon the entire world. 
what could possibly come upon the entire world that the Lord is gonna keep them from? The answer, the rapture of the church that we're taken out before the hour of trial, which is that seven-year period of time that we call the tribulation. Daniel's 70th week, the time of Jacob's trouble. He says, I'm gonna keep you from that. Jesus said in Matthew 24, there's never been a time like it. There's never gonna be a time like it again when it comes to the judgment for those that have rejected him. The Lord says, because you've kept my word, I'm, I'm gonna keep you from having to go through that terrible period of time that's coming to test those who dwell on the earth. Behold, I come quickly. Behold, I come quickly. Behold, I come quickly. Dwight, you said that already. Behold, I come quickly. I believe it's late, gang, with all that's going on right now. If he was saying it then, he was saying this to a first century church. What does that mean? It means that the rapture is imminent. It could have happened at any time. He was telling the Church of Philadelphia, I'm coming quickly. They probably went to bed at night thinking, I wonder if it's, I wonder if it's tonight. He said, it's coming quickly. Well, that was 2,000 years ago. Hold fast what you have. Don't let no one take your crown. He who overcomes, word of encouragement here, with all the stuff that's going on, a lot of people overwhelmed. If David, Paul, and Jesus could be overwhelmed, do you think we're exempt from being overwhelmed? My main point last week was that's okay. It's biblical. But just don't give up. Keep pressing on is what he told Timothy. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God and shall go, he will go out no more and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and I will write on him my new name. Well, what's coming down? Well, this is John 14. Lord said, I go to prepare a place for you that where I am, there you're gonna be with me also. We sang about it earlier, about being with the Lord. And my friends, it's late. It's not a time to get caught up in the health and wealth and seeker sensitive, the Laodicea, Corinth mentality. Uh, just the opposite. If you stand your ground these days, um, I'll probably get some emails because of what I played this morning. Um, because there's people who actually believe that if you're unvaxxed, you're the problem. And you're the one that's really the danger to be staying away from. Well, I can't hold back from what I know. I know that isn't true. And um, you'll probably uh, take heat for, for warning your friends. And I hope some of you wrote down that telephone number and make some phone calls. Or, or share it with friends. But the fact that you have a new name and the Lord has a new name, to me that's intimate. And let, let me just close it up with that thought. And some of you are thinking, Dwight, you already said you're closing it up with that thought. But the intimacy that Jesus is talking about here with a new name, I would like to liken it to what you call your sweetie when it's just you and her alone in the house. Pet name? You got a pet name? And if you do, maybe sometimes you use it in public, but 
It's more intimate. And so that's basically what the Lord is saying. He has a new name for you that's intimate. You're the bride of Christ. And I believe every husband has a pet name for his wife and a wife has a pet name for her husband and it's intimacy. And I think that's what he's closing this off with here. If you need to forgive somebody, do it. If it doesn't fall under the two categories that I talked about. False doctrine or um, um, people that withstood Paul's words like Alexander the uh, coppersmith. And um, it'll touch you free. Good place to say amen. 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 Let's stand and we will pray. Lord, we thank you for your word this morning as we uh, look into our study in Corinthians. And um, we're thankful that we've been forgiven a debt that we could never, ever, ever repay. Only you can do that. And for that, we're grateful. And Lord, if there's anybody as we're praying right now that comes to mind that we need to let go of and, and forgive, whether it's in person or whether they're just doing it in the quiet of their own heart, so that it won't be an issue that bothers them anymore. I pray that you would do that right now. And we, we thank you for the blessed hope that you gave to the Church of Philadelphia, which we want to be, and not the Church of Laodicea. So thank you for your precious promises um, that you are coming quickly. Um, even so, come Lord Jesus. All God's people said, amen. amen.